I have never met a person who changed someone else. It doesn't happen. Now, maybe next year I'll discover one. I'll write about it if I do, but it doesn't happen. People change themselves. Trying to change someone gets you R&R, and I don't mean rest and relaxation, resentment and resistance. Welcome back to another episode. I am here with Dr. Jordan, who is a clinical psychologist in New York City, and he specializes in unhappy love lives. Unhappy love lives seems to be a big theme for you, Dr. Jordan, in your practice. <laughs> yes. I'm curious if you can yeah, share with us a little bit about how that happened. How did that become <clears throat> your specialty? Well, I changed my own love life with the method in the book. <clears throat> it was embedded in a personal therapy experience. So I extracted the method and I wanted to put it in a form of a easy to read guidebook that people could understand so they could begin to work on their love lives. Like we work on everything else in our lives. Uh, I think people overlook the love life. They figure what they've learned is good enough and so on. And I'm a I'm a big proponent of learning. I think learning is involved in the good things in life and a lot of the bad stuff. And we can learn unhealthy things that continue into adulthood. That's what I discovered about my own love life. I made changes and I've been married for 28 years to a woman I love very much. So uh, she and I work together, by the way. Her name's Victoria and she's a clinical social worker analyst. And so I want to see if I can get the message out there and Help some people do the same. So take us back to before, things before, right? Because you talk about, you know, is your love life disappointing? Can you speak a little bit to what your experience was before you had the personal therapy and breakthroughs and everything? What what was your experience of relationship? Um, I was disappointed from 17 to 35 years of age in multiple disappointments um, I didn't know it at the time. I was just doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I grew up in a family where my mother was very dependent, controlling, and self-centered. And then she taught me that eligible women were dependent, controlling, and self-centered. And the, uh, <clears throat> the um, shocking thing about it, I'm going to use that word, is that I looked for dependent, controlling, and self-centered people. And what was really shocking was when I found someone who wasn't, I imagined they were. So that learning was like a template I had in my brain in terms of how love lives and love relationships would form. So I was doing the same thing over and over again, accumulating disappointment until it reached the point where personal therapy helped me focus on the fact that I was using what I had learned from my mother and begin a process of unlearning it. And so... I think a lot of my listeners will 
resonate with that independent, mm. <laughs> controlling and self-centered uh-huh. um, as a, as don't a, don't forget dependent <laughs> yes, dependent, controlling and self-centered. Mm. And so in your experience growing up, what was the effect of that on you? And then in relationships, what was the impact? For example, uh, feeling- I, be, I became a caretaking child. At a very early adolescence, I was reading books on psychiatry and psychology, trying to be of help to my unhappy mother, um, who had never really separated from her parents. They were living upstairs, hence the dependency. And control was part of the process of keeping those relationships close in order to satisfy the neediness she was feeling. And and the self-centeredness is also an effort to try to do something for oneself when you're suffering, when you're in a difficult situation emotionally. So I became a caretaking child, my mother's uh, confidant, um, and uh, I replayed that in my love life as well with these various individuals that I found or I imagined needed me to fix them, rescue them, this kind of thing. Um, And all of that just leads to what I call in the book resignation. Resignation. And I discovered I have a website, lovelifelearningcenter.com. I put up in 2012. I wanted a, a place where articles, real life articles about love life issues could accumulate. And uh, I, I wrote an article about living without love in your life. And boy, did I get an avalanche of responses to that and learned a lot, revised it a couple of times. And what I learned was that there was a lot of people from middle age on in the state of resignation. Uh, given up on love, multiple disappointments, this kind of thing. And it's real tragic when that happens, I believe, because these are fine people. These are people that deserve to have love in their lives. And if it's a learning problem, and here's the thing for me, and here's where my passion comes from. If it's a learning problem, it can be unlearned and something better learned. We learn from the beginning of life till the end of life. Uh, If someone were to define love life uh, ask me what the definition of love life would be. I would say our love life start at the moment we're born and end the moment we die. So we're learning about love relationships unconsciously. And that's the real important word. Unconscious means by example, observation, by relationship, sometimes by instruction. But observation and relationship are big ways to learn about love life. So we're learning as children, infants, we're learning as adolescents, um, and oftentimes we copy what we see or we're reacting to what we see in a healthy and unhealthy way. And all of that needs to be unraveled. Once it's understood, once it's seen consciously, then something can be done about it. And that's very important. Yeah, there's something poignant about what you said of that article, living without love in your life, becoming one of your most trafficked articles. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. I hear that from a lot of my clients as well about just the experience of profound loneliness, living Absolutely. without love in your life. Absolutely. And for a lot of people, I'm thinking about a lot of my my men clients, it's not just about intimate partnership. It's not just about living without love, intimate partnership love, but also just close community, close friends, close people. So I liked what you said about what is your love life. It's not just your romantic life. No, not at all. Love in your life. Absolutely. Love life. Absolutely. And it's 
bigger uh-huh. than that. So yeah, yeah that, I, I'm curious. Yeah. If you, I, I'm curious about that, that process of coming to consciousness for you in terms of uh, repeating the same pattern mm-hmm. with women. And, and you did mention sort of, even if they ne- weren't necessarily dependent, controlling and, and narcissistic, was it self-involved? Uh-huh. Uh, that was sort of how you experienced them. Can Absolutely. you say a little about that? About your Oh, uh, that's the scary part. <laughs> it sounds a little psychotic, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess it is. It's like a, a a transformation, a distortion of reality. Because, and that's how hallucinations form. You know, we have something in the brain, and it gets transplanted onto reality. You know, and it's not just for. Uh, people who are suffering from psychosis, it's also for everyday life. If we have a strong belief, if we have a strong conviction, we can transform our experiences with that conviction. So when early learning of this kind takes place in an experience such as love, love is a very strong motivator, maybe the strongest one. And when an experience of learning takes place, that learning becomes, and here's a dirty word for you, familiar. Because the root of familiar is family. Family. What we learn in the family is familiar. Now, that's strong learning. Very strong learning. Very easy to resist change. Very easy to repeat over and over again. In In the method that I offer, the first step is always identification. Getting to your question, identification brings forth consciousness. I'm aware now, let me identify this pattern, this blueprint, this template that I've learned about love relationships. And by the way, in the book, in my preface, I start off with, this is not a book about love. And it's not. It's a book about love relationships, the relationships we form when we fall in love. And we human beings can fall in love more than once in our lives. What we do to contain that love, how healthy the relationship will be, is a big issue because we can stifle the love with an unhealthy relationship. And of course, that's tragic. Or we can take care of the love, grow it, allow it to evolve over the lifetime of a relationship. So uh, identifying is important. Another concept that I throw out in the book that I really love, and it's really defines my emphasis, is the psychological love life. I believe real changes take place in our love lives from the inside out. I mean, we can change where we go to meet people. We can change what vacation spots we go to, how we dress, of course, what restaurants we go to, whatever, what mixers we go to. But it's that template on the inside. When you start working with that, you're making big changes in how you will look for people, what you believe about love relationships, what feelings you have when you're in the process of experiencing love and love relationships. So I make a big deal out of working from the inside out. And and, uh, in that process of identification, the first step is always to notice repetition in your love life. Now, why is repetition important? It's important because it it, 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 it marks the existence of learning. If something's repeating, you've learned something, chances are. It's on automatic pilot. I'm doing it over and over again because that's what the deep-seated learning is 
predicting and promoting. The next step is to determine what kind of replicated replicated experiences taking place. And that's in the book, I list 10 unhealthy relationship experiences that I discovered over the course of my practice. Uh, We're getting into people's love lives, abandonment, neglect was one you mentioned, rejection, self-centeredness, dependency, abuse, exploitation, mistrust. These are all words that describe experiences when we have them earlier in life We learn things from them that are toxic for our love lives. They do not promote intimacy. And so identifying which ones have gotten in, I identified three, dependency, control, and self-centeredness. These three can damage your love life when you're recreating it and you're expecting it to occur in your love life. Um, And by the way, how we behave in our love life, we can go looking. I went looking for people with those traits. Sometimes we manifest the traits ourselves. So it can be either or or a combination. I can go looking for abusive people if I I, I was brought up in an abusive household, or I can be abusive toward the people that I find. In either case, and I've met people that have done alternate. One relationship where they were abused, one relationship where they were abusing. Either way, we're influenced by the learning and we're replicating the experience of abuse and the disrespectful stuff that occurs as a consequence of that. So being able to identify what the learning pattern is, is always step one. That's what gives consciousness its strength. But I don't stop there. Consciousness in and of itself is not good enough, in my opinion. That's a professional opinion. I've seen it bear out over the years. Uh, Consciousness is a wonderful tool. It's one of our greatest assets, but it's a tool. You have to use it. How do you use it? Step two, you challenge the pattern. You identify it now because you see it as unhealthy. It's unhealthy. It promotes unhealthy beliefs, unhealthy behavior, and unhealthy feelings. And you go looking for them, and you label them. Uh-oh, this is the same kind of guy that could drive me crazy in my love life. He's kind of like what I experienced at home. This is the kind of woman that's going to be a problem for me, and I've got to stay away from this. Well, this is the kind of person that I should you know, welcome into my love life because I can see the differences from what I experienced earlier. It becomes consciousness used for the purpose of moving oneself away from a pattern that proved toxic. Step three is the correction, the correction of what we've learned. And I love the word opposite. Opposite is a therapeutic word in this regard. Opposite of abandonment, commitment. I need to, if I've been abandoned, I need to move my love life towards commitment. Get the abandoning partners out of my life. Stop abandoning if I'm doing the abandoning and move towards commitment. Do I know what commitment means? Maybe not. Let me study it. Let me understand it. Let me work on it. Let me think about it. Let me journal about it. Let me work on it. Uh, Neglect. What's the opposite of neglect? Devotion. Being in a relationship, involved, present, uh, caring, full-time, not part-time, like neglect. So let me study that process. I've had patients tell me, for example, abandoned patients, abandoned by a parent in childhood, recreating unavailable partners in their love lives. Uh, At one point, 
a woman I was working with became very aware of how she was doing that. Stage two, she had it down, one and two. I don't want that in my life anymore. So I say to her, well, we got to find someone who's committed and someone who's available. And she goes, you know, that makes me anxious. I said, wait a minute, let's stop on that for a second. Makes you anxious. Why? And she used another dirty word. It's unfamiliar. (laughs) Wait a minute. Literally unfamiliar. I wasn't taught that in my family. That's what that word means. I don't know what to do with that. It's scary. I'm going to get hurt. I'll be vulnerable. Uh Uh-oh. Bell's ringing. So I'm saying, okay, let's do a little work with that opposite. Let's uh, let's move it in a direction where you can become a little more confident that you can handle this new learning and apply it to your love life. And that's a nice piece of work. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend the other day about a similar a similar thing. And she said, it's brave to trust that our partners will break their patterns with us. It's brave to trust that our partners will break their patterns with us. And what I mean is in the learning, right? So there's, I'm recreating the abuse by choosing abusers, or I'm recreating the abuse by abusing others, or I'm learning a new way to do this. I'm learning a new way to do this. It's almost like we learned dance steps in our families and we're very familiar with those dance steps. We know them really well to your point. <laughs> and there's and and it's interesting because I think a lot of this connects to exactly what you said about resignation. The the feeling of resignation is this is never going to change for me. This is always going to be like this. There's no hope, right? That huh? feeling of and it's interesting what you said about middle age because I do I do have a sense sometimes of um when you're disappointed again and again and again, it gets harder and harder to trust that it will ever be different. Uh And that that faith, it is possible for me to learn new dance steps. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are dancers out there that will dance with me in a different way there. It's, it's brave to believe that it's brave to trust. It's brave to grow because it's a lot easier to sit back and say, oh, this is never going to work for me. It never has worked for me. People have always abandoned me. You know, that there's inertia that goes yeah, along. But more that. painful, ultimately. It's more painful, ultimately. And so it's brave to grow. I, I think right. that's what I want to say is, I think there's something significant about what you said in terms of that article being so popular, living without love in your life resonated hugely with people because mm-hmm. there are so many people that have repeated patterns and don't know where to go. They just don't know. Absolutely. Do it. So Absolutely. I'm if you can finish that story. What happened to that woman who said, Ooh, that would be unfamiliar. Um, she is now dating unfamiliar men. And that's where we're at in the treatment as I'm providing support for that idea. I help strengthen it in any way that I can and give her a home to bring her anxiety, tell her stories, um, um, and, and, and to be able to clarify it strengthens that tool of consciousness so that she can go through it. It's almost like 
overcoming a phobia of some kind. You know, you don't like crossing a, a bridge or, or or driving on a road or or flying on a plane. Uh, you you expose yourself to what you're afraid of and you reintegrate the reality of what you experience. So you're you're challenging again, you're going through an unlearning process that unseats that automatic pattern and allows something different to take place. And if you think about it, it's basically the process of psychological change. This is what happens. We we become aware of something that needs to change. We enter a, a phase of what I like to think of as therapeutic conflict. What we learned and what we're learning are now in conflict, right? Who's going to dominate? You know, at first it's what we learned and then what we're tagging as, as the knowledge of unhealthy uh, just gets stronger and stronger. And then we go through a process of doing something different. We're unfamiliar with handle the unknown, be able to make it familiar. But I guess we should use another word. <laughs> well, walk us through a little bit of your own experience of doing this. So you became aware in your own therapeutic process. Hey, I keep attracting dependent, self-absorbed. What was the third one? Uh, uh, self, self-centered, controlling, controlling. And, uh, right. and dependent. I keep right. attracting. These Don't leave out control because that's a very toxic item. Oh, absolutely. So you, you, know. you sort of kept attracting those partners. Not only attracting, I went looking for them. Went looking for them unconsciously. Yeah, it, was, yeah, it wasn't a, necessarily a passive thing. It was, uh, in my case, I went looking for them. Okay. Yeah, I didn't like stand around like bait. Let me let me attract this type of fish. You know, it was more like you know, let me let me meet people and kind of discriminate the type uh -huh. of person that fits with my template. That's what happened. And in a few instances, as I mentioned, I I read into it and distorted the whole thing. And that was kind of shocking. And I think I rationalized it. I just made up some kind of story in my brain that this person wasn't ready for a relationship, da, da, da. You know, that's where I went. But what happened to me was that once I became aware that I was replicating in this way, uh, I took a break from dating because I was shocked. I was overwhelmed. I, uh, I took a break from dating and something interesting happened. And I'm assuming there are different roads to Rome, so to speak, for any individual, because I think this process can be tailored when it's done well. Uh, I stopped dating and I, I went looking for female friends, non-sexual, non-romantic. I didn't have any sisters, just three brothers. My mother and grandmother were the models. I wanted to see what other kind of women were out there that I might have been overlooking. So I, uh, I developed some very strong friendships. One in particular I had for about five years, and she and I were best buds. We hung around. We went out in town. We uh, we were interested in other people. We would tell each other what we were doing and stuff. And it was very enlightening. I'll use that word. I learned that women could be independent, not controlling, and intimate, which is the opposite of self-centered. And when that lesson was learned, uh, our relationship, this friend of mine and I, she moved away. It cooled. Uh, Victoria showed up. <laughs> now, there's a little mystery. <laughs> I mean, I might have been sending out different uh, a different aura or something, whatever it was. She showed up. 
hung around for about a year and a half, and she moved in. Maybe it was shorter than that. It might have been a few months, and then she moved in. It was like predetermined, and we got married right after that. Um, so I think what happened is a change in me that affected what went on in my love life, and that's the most important part of the story. And that's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because in a way it was you you consciously sought out exactly what you said, which is a different model. I want a different model of what women can be like mm-hmm. than I grew up with. Absolutely. What I saw. And you consciously decided to cultivate women friends. And like right. you said, there's lots of roads to get there, but there's, I think the seed of, of this is you were consciously aware that you wanted something different. Yes. So went towards something different, something different. Right. And then when it was in your life, you cultivated it. Yeah. But I, I don't want, I don't want your viewers to get the idea. I did that cool as a cucumber. It, <laughs> <laughs> there was, you know, there was a, a feeling of discomfort in it. There was unknown in it. There was, I had an idea, but I wasn't sure about application. I was taking risks, getting close to people who were unfamiliar to me. I had never had a, a close woman friend like this, a buddy, someone that, you know, uh, looked for me to help her and I looked for her to help me. And there were like exchanges of, of, of intimate, emotional intimacy between us. Never sexual, never romantic, just friends. The kind of friendships I had had with men uh, in my life were now about women. And, you know, it wasn't too, I must say that it wasn't like hyper-conscious. It wasn't like I was like, you know, I had it written out in my brain. It was sort of like I was drawn to, to find something. I had a notion. I was talking about it in my therapy, but it wasn't like 100% conscious. I think it could have been. I, I, I think if had I to do it over, maybe just reading the book, maybe, maybe just doing it trial and error, I might have been a little, I, I could have journaled it and said, you know, I really have to find an independent woman who's not controlling, who's not self-centered. Let me go looking for her. Where would she be? Would she be at the nightclubs I used to go to? No, not really. She might be in the classroom. You know, she might be at a at, at a at a at a meetup group, you know, the meetup.com kind of thing. I mean, that that different thinking and feeling starts to show up. And that's important. But it's a it's a process. That's the thing. It, not ABC. It's a process, emotional process. Yeah. Thanks for speaking to that, because I think that that openness to something new was the shift. Mm-hmm. I am open to meeting new kinds of women. Yes. <laughs> something new in my life that uh-huh. is this old pattern that I now see clearly. Wow, I've been doing that for a good 20 years. <laughs> you know, right. it's time for something. And something. when the old pattern shows up again, you can identify it. Like, you know, and I, I went through a process like that. Like I had this additional notion in my brain that I was now. 35, 36 years old. I was thinking I graduated. I was out of grad school. I had a job, had a life. How about a partner? You know, my parents had been married for a very long time. I had that model in my mind a little bit. And it's like, okay, let me find a partner. So it was a process of relationship shift. I had 
the value of relationship in my brain. And when I met people that were players, playful, interested in just having fun, I was able to say to myself, that's not maybe, you know, five years ago, (laughs) I would have been having fun in that way. But I'm really interested in someone who speaks the language of relationship, appears to be receptive to it. And that's uh, that's part of the self-study process. You know, I like to think of it in that way. You go through these stages by changing something on the inside. I want to I want to make a reference to something else that's in the psychological love life that I'd like people to know about. There's the experiences that get into our love life, healthy or unhealthy. There's what we've learned. But there's a third item. I refer to the third item as after effects. Why? After effects are in your psychological love life when the experiences you've had are hurtful and unhealthy. So let's talk about the two most common after effects. The first one, defensiveness. And you can think of after effects as an effort to try to fix your own love life without awareness. Uh, You're defensive in love relationships. Um, Distance. Avoidance, conflict. I'll make conflict all the time and not let my partner be in my vulnerability. So those three are big ways in which people can stay defensive in their love life. But as you can guess, defensiveness ruins the ability to give love and receive love. So not very helpful. But a lot of people out there who are defensive as a way to deal with the hurt that they replicate over and over again in this disappointment cycle we talked about. Here's another one you might recognize. Trying to change your love partner. I'll make her a better woman. I'll make her, I'll make him a loving man. I have never, let me make this announcement in 34 years of practice. I have never met a person who changed someone else. It doesn't happen. Now, Maybe next year I'll discover one. I'll write about it if I do, but it doesn't happen. People change themselves. Trying to change someone gets you R&R, and I don't mean rest and relaxation, resentment and resistance. Uh, And here's a subcategory of that one. Substituting multiple love partners, looking for the perfect partner. Oh, let me change to another one. Let me get another one. Let me get another one for as long as that lasts. Now, I I think it's a way to try to address love life problems, but I don't think it will be very successful in my experience. So I want to go back to, well, two things. One, I would love to hear just a little bit about your dad, because you mentioned your mom as a template Uh for future love partners. And I do think that, you know, both parents have a pretty significant. Absolutely. What was that that relationship like? Was he passive? Did he kind Uh, of. um, In fact, you know, I I, in chapter five of my book, I'm just going to I'm going to flash this up to respond initially to your question. Let me see. Chapter five. Uh, I use myself as a case study because that way I was the only one that signed the confidentiality agreement. There's mom and dad, a little picture, and myself when I was a year and a half uh, as the two people that taught me about love relationships. (laughs) Um, 
Dad was a bit passive. His father-in-law was his boss living upstairs. Um, and Dad was a caretaker. So I kind of learned how to be a hardworking man who takes care of the people he loves from good old dad. Um, and he was, uh, the hardworking part of him was something I was drawn to. I think there's positives there that I inter internalized. Um, the passive part I had to fix in my personal treatment experiences. And the caretaking part, I had to modify that a bit. Um, because there's a there's a, a, an old clinical phrase called parentified child, and that's uh, that's what I became. And what I learned about parentification when you're a child is what you turn into is a self-sacrificing adult caretaker. Uh, emphasis on self-sacrificing, so that needs to be fixed. I've certainly had a lot of people who are caretake self-sacrificing caretakers in my office over the years. And the, the primary work is to balance them off again, like, or for the first time in their lives where they realize, okay, taking care of people is good, but not depleting myself at the same time. So when you balance that off, oh boy, the quality of life goes way, way up. And I would imagine that's a lot of boundary setting, learning how to set. Oh, yes. The people. word no is instrumental. <laughs> <laughs> and was that, I'm curious, in, in that sort of restorative friendship that you had for five years, which is a long time, was that part of how you learned boundaries with someone just being around someone who was perhaps well-boundaried herself? Or how did you learn boundaries? It, it wasn't uh, boundaries. Setting boundaries, uh, I didn't have to in that relationship. So this this wasn't an issue. Uh, the control wasn't there, which would relate to the topic of boundaries. Uh, the neediness wasn't there, which would relate to the topic of boundaries. Um, so it wasn't really an issue. And boundaries was something I was learning quite a bit about in the course of my analysis. So that came up pretty early. Um, when I left home, my mother's neediness tried to follow me. So when I entered analysis, uh, I started working on that, uh, the ability to say no without guilt, which, by the way, is the big contaminant uh, when you're going to say no. That's the big problem with saying no when you're a caretaker is the guilt feeling you can feel. And the person you're caring, you're caring for can induce that, can make it stronger. So... I was at work on that one quite a bit from the beginning. So by the time I was getting together with my buddy, as I described, my female buddy, it was more like I was uh, already it was appreciating this, the, the containment that occurred as a consequence of a little bit more maturity. You know? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I have experienced that the necessity for boundaries is so much more present in people that are insecure and mm. don't, don't have a certain level of development. So uh -huh. it's interesting that you mentioned that because that has also been my experience about being in relationship with men who are more developed and have a lot more personal growth under their belt is things are just easier. Uh -huh. so Always. I, I'm not setting boundaries because there are none that need to be set. Right. It's, it's, it's just it's just easier. They're Absolutely. just isn't that same level. of Absolutely. For anybody, male, female, anyone, yes. anyone 
uh, uh, the maturity, you can define psychological maturity vis-a-vis that concept of boundaries. In my, uh, in my list of, of unhealthy relationship experiences, I've added two since the book was written. One of them addresses boundaries, intrusion is an unhealthy relationship experience that's oftentimes experienced early when there's no boundaries in a family of origin context, for example. And the feeling that comes from that is violation. You feel violated. So the correction for that, I like to use the word restraint. The restraint is a word that suggests boundary, and it couples with boundary because restraint is knowing where the limits are in terms of interacting with someone. You ask permission, um, you respect privacy, um, and this is a respect for the individuality that, again, promotes intimacy. These corrections promote intimacy. That's the experience you're looking for when you correct these unhealthy relationship experiences I've listed. So, Yes, and an example of intrusion is, for example, one of my friends, his mother would actually go into his room, whether he was there or not. He never had a lock on the door and she would rearrange things. She would touch things. She would go through his things. There was no sense of boundary. There was no sense of my space. So what he learned from that was people won't respect my space. They won't Uh respect me. I have no control that that's the thing is when we're young and we're learning these things very young, We can have a sense of helplessness or powerlessness, but we don't have words necessarily to explain it yet. Yes. Or we don't necessarily know. Right. I don't have a sense of my own space. We just don't understand why we keep attracting mean people. Right, right. (laughs) Or intrusive people. I don't want Uh, intrusive people. And, Uh you know, when you're you're using the word analysis, I assume you're talking about therapy. Yes. Therapy is a place where we can explore what we actually did experience and learn and uh-huh. have a healthy attuned adult yes. tell us that uh-huh. wasn't normal. Right. That exactly. Because exactly. we don't know what happened. Yes. We don't is. know. Right. Think, let me oh, offer you, let me offer you a psychological different. example of the same thing. When you grow up with a parent or parents who believe they know who you are better than you do. You can consider that an intrusion on your individuality. If you're not given a space, now I'm not saying parents shouldn't make suggestions, even have an agenda to promote something, but there's a point where intrusion occurs psychologically. And that is when you get a sense that your child is not who you think he or she is. A big example of that that unfortunately lands in therapist's office quite a bit in the past century was gay people in the closet. Uh, Gay people in the closet have, chances are, been intruded upon psychologically. They They probably had heterosexual parents who didn't want to believe they were gay. You're not gay. Don't talk about that. Um, And uh, that's an intrusion in one's individuality. So the correction of that is to give oneself permission to be who you are and emerge forward in that respect. And that's the correction. And spend time with people who want to know who you are Mm. rather than think they know who you are. Absolutely. An example of that 
that I heard about recently was uh, a parent who would just kind of lecture at the dinner table. Uh-huh. There was no, how are you? What happened to you today? What's going on at school? How's it going? That that process of being present and attuned and drawing out your child uh-huh. is part of how you parent well. That's uh-huh. part of how you help your child develop. Right. And if your child doesn't ever get that to your point, right. it's really hard to know who uh-huh. am I and what do I want? Absolutely. Sort of blank space uh-huh. doesn't get doesn't flourish. Absolutely. Leads to issues. Yes. One of the, I believe one of the hardest jobs parents have is to acknowledge the uniqueness of their children. And that word unique is difficult for the parent. Why? Uh, You are the fruit of my loins, but I can't declare who you are. What? You look like me, and I can't predict who you are or who you will be. What? Well, it's funny because in a way, it should be the most natural thing to say, this is an exciting discovery. I don't Ah. know who you are. I get to find out who you are. Ah. I don't think we're necessarily trained on that in our culture. It doesn't. It feels like, yes. Boxes going, we're right. to into instead of here's this mystery of a human being and I get to see who they are. And yes. I think that that's a little bit corrective as well for, for people who have experienced intrusion is really acknowledging I get to discover who I am. I don't really know yet. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I've made it to my second or third or fourth decade of life. And the truth is I'm still getting to know who I am. Right. And part of that is because Maybe your parents didn't do a very good job of helping you with that. Ooh. Doesn't mean they're bad parents, Ooh. but they didn't help you with that. Yes. Oh, and, and let me let me bring back the big boogeyman or boogie woman. Let's be equal. <laughs> the boogie person. This is an example of a little bit of unfamiliarity showing up early in life. The uniqueness of your child is not taught. It comes with the child into the life from the beginning. My old analyst used to say, when I would complain about my parents, he used to say in a deep, understanding voice, you didn't pick them. (laughs) The first time he said that, it drove me crazy. I didn't pick them. I didn't pick them. That's right. I walked home with that phrase bouncing off my cranium, trying to figure out what the hell does this mean? I didn't pick them. That's right. There's a lot of wisdom in that little phrase. Can you say, can you say a little more about what you, how you developed that understanding of that phrase? Um, What it does is acknowledges the individuality and uniqueness of the child. It does that. It also acknowledges that your parents are not you. You're not them. You're there to be launched into adulthood. Now, I hate to say this, but some parents don't have that agenda. And you have to do the launching yourself. We've touched on that today. Um, Not easy, but necessary. 
also no help finding out who you are earlier in life. And you're lucky if you do get that help, you find out in middle age, which is the big age period for therapy. Uh, not long ago, I realized, wow, if I put my practice on a graph, 20s, 30s, 40s, <laughs> 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, what's this 40s spike? It's the time in life where we're old enough and young enough to say, what have I learned and is it working for me? Midlife crisis, which I interpret as midlife opportunity. Midlife evaluation. Ah, that's nice where too. I like I? that. As where? a learning kind of field. Yeah, to it. <laughs> where am I? Where do I want to be? And if I'm not going in that direction, mm. maybe I should bring in some help <laughs> to help yeah, me go in right, the right direction. Right. Because I've been trying for 45 years and it hasn't worked so far. Right, right. So, yeah, as we sort of start to wrap up here, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to back to that sort of sense of resignation. What have you seen helps people overcome that and, and have faith again? Maybe this is possible for me. Maybe I should see a yes. therapist, go to a workshop, hire a coach, you know, learn something, expand, because in order to make that effort, there has to be some seed of maybe there's maybe there's something possible. Maybe hope yes. is hope. If, you, hope. if you are truly hopeless, you're not going to go for the go absolutely. For the, you're not. So do you have anything to speak to someone who's absolutely maybe in that place? Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a thumbnail sketch of what the article tries to convey. And as I said, I, I revised the article a few times based on the commentary I'd received. I mean, people responded. I read every comment to try to extract what people were telling me. So uh, and another point is that it, this article deals with a very delicate issue. This is not this is not something that just uh, like a bull in a china closet. This is this is very delicate. There's there's hurt here that has been replicated over and over again. There's loss of hope, as you pointed out. So the important point about living without love is to acknowledge that it's a sensitive area, that multiple disappointments have led to a feeling of hopelessness about love. Other things have been substituted for love, probably in a person's life, lifestyle. Okay, so what do we do about it? Say a person reads the article and says, okay, this guy's saying that there's something that can be done about this state of mind I'm in. Here's my proposal. And I had to reach pretty deep for this one. The one thing that I think has the power to make a change in this area is to believe that each and every human being has the ability to love from the beginning of life. It never dies. We can bury it. We can put it in the closet. We can deny it. But we have the ability to love. That's the kind of creature that we are. If you seriously want to bring your love life back from the place of resignation, finding a way to give love in your life, 
I think, is the most potent way to do that. Whether it be joining organizations that help people, whether it be consciously deciding to give charity, giving, making friends, doing something that involves giving love to people, love defined broadly as we have in this podcast. I think that does wonderful things. Number one, love comes back. It comes back, not because you're asking for it. It comes back because you've given it. It's like a volleyball. It comes right back to you. That's a wonderful little thing to realize, number one. Number two, it attracts people who have love to give. Might attract people that have love, the need to receive love as well. So, you, you know, you got your hands full. <laughs> you're going to be dealing. You're going to be trying to understand who the people are in your life. But it's going to bring love back. There's a better chance. And that's my recommendation in the article. That's a pretty advanced practice in a way, because there's if you are someone who has had a history of self-sacrifice, Mm -hmm. then it could feel a little intimidating, the idea of giving love. But what you're describing is not self-sacrificing no. love. No. Which arguably self-sacrifice isn't, isn't love in the end. Right. But there's a sense of genuine generosity uh -huh. and attempting to, to connect in a generous spirit. So generous not spirit. in order to get something or not in order to stay safe, which is, I think, a big part of where self-sacrifice comes uh -huh. from. Not right. an effort to to fill in some other blank, but for the exercise of generosity of spirit. And there's plenty of social science to back up that altruism, giving of oneself, is very psychologically beneficial. Uh -huh. There's lots of research that shows that, you know, there's a classic study where they give people $20 and to a certain to certain people, they say, they, they don't give them any instruction, do whatever you want with this $20 to a certain population. They say, spend it on yourself. And, and to a certain population, they say, spend this on someone else. And then they measure the happiness ratings of each of the population. Oh, right. <laughs> people who spend the money on someone else are always happier. And by extraordinary leaps and bounds on the psychological studies, it's, it's, or on the um, scales, uh -huh. Like you, you, you bought the coffee for the person behind you, whatever it is, that exchange brings a lot of joy and uh, gratitude, feelings of gratitude, feelings of I can provide value. Absolutely. Has you feel good about your own self-esteem. So I love that. As and does one more thing at What's some that? point, inevitably, I believe someone shows up with a cup of coffee for you. Yeah. And you sit there and you look and you say, wow, look at this. I threw a cup of coffee out into the universe and it came right back to me. <laughs> <laughs> karma, karma. You can't fake it out. You, there's no, uh, it. The, the spirit uh -huh. of generosity is present or it's not. And there's something about life that can feel that, that knows the, the intention and the, the spirit in which the gift was given matters. Uh -huh. Absolutely. I want so, to say, I love your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thank you for this opportunity to go over this material because my experience, and I wrote about this in my book, I think this topic is alive. It's living. It's never stopped evolving. I make that comment in the book. I mean, to my 
sometimes my like, you know, like I get like, wow, when isn't it going to reach a point of like finality, like done? I don't have to think about this anymore, but it keeps evolving. And I think it's because it's living. It's a living topic. Love is a living topic. We are born with the need for love and to give love. I believe both of those needs exist. How the world we've created handles that need, well, there's a long history of whatever. But the point is, it's part of our natures. So it's a living entity, and we should pay attention to it. It's a human need. Absolutely. To love and be loved. Absolutely. Human need. So if people are interested in the book, where can they find it? Amazon.com is the primary source, but it's everywhere else. All learn the book distributors. Learn to love is the title. And if they put in the whole title, Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life, that's the it'll get to the uh the, the page more quickly. And I invite everybody to come to my website. There's more than 300 articles there. And uh, to think of it as a library, lovelifelearningcenter.com. And, and I also, oh, I'm sorry, I want to, I'm going to just add, my wife and I offer telehealth support. If people read the book and they want a little interaction on the phone, to that's convenient to uh, help them through the stages. My wife and I, my wife, Victoria, and I offer that as well. Oh, and I will also drop the link to the article we referenced in this episode. I'll put that uh-huh. in the show notes in the description. So you can, you can go there for that one. And thank you. Thank you. Be well. Hey everyone. If you are a frequent listener, you are already familiar with our training. Jason and I offer a free training and you can find that at evolutionary.men slash training if you're interested in going deeper than the podcast. But what I wanted to update you on was that if you want to go even deeper and you're ready to do a live event, Jason is leading a live event for our community. And that is at the end of July. It's the last weekend of July in Northern California. You can find more information at evolutionary.men slash retreat. I will be there. So if you've been wanting to check out the work in person, go deeper, get connected to other men who care, who are doing the work and facilitators who care and are doing the work, please check that out at evolutionary.men slash retreat. <music>